Thanks so much, Sam, uh, for reading. Um, let me add my welcome to Johnny's. I'm Chris Evans. Um, a few unfamiliar faces visiting us, or some pop in uh, from time to time. It's great to have you here. Um, I'm going to pray for the Lord's help uh, as we uh, begin. We're just looking at the first four verses today, uh, begin a little series in uh, this book of Jude. Heavenly Father, we thank you that all of Scripture is breathed out by you. And we know that in our hearts we find certain uh, passages, certain books, easier than others. And Father, from what we have just read, there may be much which feels hard, much which feels unfamiliar. And yet you have given us all of Scripture to be useful for us, to train us in righteousness, to be equipped for every good work, to point us to your Son, the Lord Jesus. And so we pray as we begin a few weeks in this book of Jude that you would use this book to build up your church to help us to follow Christ faithfully in Jesus name we pray amen um I wonder when the last time you ever used the words that's not my problem was it's not my problem um was it in the last week the last day um all sorts of scenarios. Uh, maybe uh, a kind of pop-up on Instagram or on YouTube for a kind of famine relief. And we say, it's, it's not my problem. Maybe you're stopped walking down Winchester High Street uh, by uh, a charity person, maybe someone uh, trying, to, trying to combat gun crime. And they stop you, and it's, it's not my problem. Maybe on the news we see that war has been declared on a terrorist regime in a, in a country thousands of miles away. It's not my problem. Maybe we read of a, a mortgage company defaulting. I think, well, it's, it's in Australia, it's in America. It's not, not my problem. Maybe university fees are hiked up again. We think, well, for those of us who've already been, we think, well, that's all right. I'm just grateful it's not me, not, not my problem. It's an easy response to have, isn't it? And before we kind of feel ridden with guilt at saying that's not my problem about lots of things, um, we are limited as human beings in what we can do, limited in time, in energy, in resources. If every problem we encountered was, uh, we were able to give our time and, to, and worth giving energy to, we, we just couldn't deal with all of them, could we? And we're not meant to. We weren't designed to bear all of the world's problems. If we tried, we'd probably implode. But sometimes those things that we say that's not my problem to, sometimes they do become our problem, don't they? The, the defaulting mortgage company then leads to a recession and impacts um, you and your neighbours. Or war on distant shores suddenly lands closer to home perhaps seen in terrorist acts or in people having to, to sign up. University fees uh, go up now and then become something that maybe we don't need to face, but we might need to pay for our children. But what about when that problem is to do with our faith? Today we're starting a, a three-part series in the book of Jude. Um, I don't know if it's one that You've read many times, it's sort of tucked away at the end of the Old Testament. And Jude gives us a situation where we cannot say, that's not my problem. 
Uh, Jude is writing to a church which is being told there's a way to ditch Jesus as your Lord, but keep him as your saviour. That is what's going on. And what makes Jude so relevant for, for us is that this problem is the same as one of our culture's greatest values, isn't it? Personal autonomy. You be you, be true to yourself, follow your heart, find yourself. At the heart of them all is me. I am the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. We see it everywhere. And it's not just in our culture, it is in our churches and also in our own hearts, isn't it? Haven't we all, at times, wanted a Jesus who affirms every choice and lifestyle that, that, that we want and says, just be true to yourself? Have we ever wondered whether a Jesus who tells me how to live well, it feels a bit like he's stepping on my toes. He's being a bit too harsh, a bit authoritarian. But in Jude, we see denying the lordship of Christ is akin to denying the gospel of grace altogether. We can't say that's not my problem to Jude's problem. And it is a problem that we see in our culture and in our world. So we can't say that's not my problem right now either but before we hear what he has to say um, let's just take a little moment to get acquainted with him uh, my hunch is that probably for most of us in this room we agree with uh, Thomas Hardy's book that Jude is a bit obscure so um, a couple of minutes on Jude um, what do we know about him well he describes himself in two ways you see in verse one Jude a servant of Jesus Christ Literally, the word used is the word for slave. Jesus is Jude's master. Now, you probably think that's a good place for, for a pastor to be, with Jesus as your master. But it's even more surprising when we get the next verse. The second thing we learn is that he is a brother of James. And this is probably the James who wrote the New Testament book, James. And this is the James who is one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church in Acts 15. And this James was also the brother of the Lord Jesus. Jude is the brother of James, the brother of Jesus, which makes him the brother of Jesus. Jude, or Judas, which is another way of his, his name being spelt, is mentioned in Matthew 13, verse 55. They say this, Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, or Jude? Well, as we read the Gospels, we know, don't we, that Jesus' family, they don't believe in him during his earthly ministry. But this letter tells us there was a moment when, after Jesus had been crucified, risen again, and ascended, where after, I don't know how long it was, can you imagine, Jude realized, hang on, my big brother was the son of God. Now, he could have opened the letter like that, couldn't he? Jude, brother of Jesus. But it's telling that he doesn't. 
whatever personal connection he has, whatever privilege he might be able to kind of leave her with that, the most important thing for Jude is that Jesus is his Lord. So that's who Jude is. Second thing, as we come to Jude, Jude feels a bit like a foreign land. Uh, I wonder if you've ever kind of sat in in a group of people maybe discussing a series of books or films that you know absolutely nothing about, but maybe have a bit of a cult following. Thinking Star Trek, Star Wars, Dungeons and Dragons, that sort of thing. Uh, And you're in the middle of the conversation and it feels like another language. Um, You know, I mean, I I quite like Star Trek. Does anyone know what a Ferengi is? Oh, a few people are nodding. Well, there we go. That's what it's, reading Jude feels a bit like that, isn't it? What what, what are some of these words? You might have been listening and thinking, you know, what is, just, what is going on here? Why is this even in the Bible? Well, that's because Jude likely had a, a bit of a different audience to most of us, a, a Jewish audience. He quotes a lot of Old Testament. Some of it is just in shorthand, one phrase, one name. And he even refers to some other Jewish literature to make kind of illustrations. All of that's to say... I know it feels a bit weird, but hold on. We might have to work a little bit harder, especially next week when we get to some of those bits that sound slightly odd. We might have to work a bit harder to get the gist, but it is worth it because we can't say that's not my problem to Jude's problem. So it feels like a foreign land, but it's worth getting there. And third thing about Jude, he is a preacher with a pastoral heart. Um, As we go through Jude, you see now and again he uses um, little groups of threes. Uh, We're going to look at a couple today. And I think that maybe that's where the three-point sermon came from. I don't know. But he uses threes, and it kind of gives us a way of making things memorable. And he uses metaphors and illustrations. Did you hear that one? Clouds without rain. Ways of making us not just understand, but feel what he's saying. He is a a preacher, but he also has a pastoral heart. Did you see verse 3, verse 17, verse 20? Dear friends. He loves these people. And verse 3 tells us he'd planned to write about their shared salvation, but with a pastor's heart, he changed his mind because of a problem that he heard. He said, this is so serious, I, I need to write a different letter altogether. He is so concerned for them, and that is why he is strong in his words. And his pastor's heart is why he starts with our our first point. So when not my problem becomes my problem, first of all, we have to know that our salvation is secure. That's the first thing that we need to know. Before Jude brings up any danger, before he calls them to do anything, he wants them to know their salvation is secure. Did you see, he describes the Christian in three ways. This is one of our little groups of three in verse one. To those who've been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Called, loved, and kept. Let's take each one in turn. Called. Well, I don't know about you, throughout life, we often hear about people being on a journey to find God, as if God is the one who is hiding. But from the beginning, go back to Genesis 3, 
It is humans who hide from God, not God from humans. And the story of the Bible, right from then on until now, is of God calling a people back to himself. And the greatest calling, the the loudest moment, is when he speaks in the Lord Jesus. And it is echoing now until when the Lord Jesus returns. And so God's people are described as those who are called. That is true of you, if you trust in the Lord Jesus today. But this call isn't just like a, a kind of party invitation that lands and that you think, oh, yes or no, um, you know, I'd better check, check the diary. Um, no, those who've been called are called in a special way. This is more of a call like Lazarus, Jesus calling to Lazarus, who is dead in the tomb. It is a call that is like a summons that has the power to bring the dead to life, a call that cannot be ignored. But it isn't a call that forces us. Nonetheless, it is a call that the moment we hear it creates a longing within us and an irresistible desire to say yes. A call not just from death to life, but a call into a new forever family. The Lord calls his people. But why does he call us? Well, that's the second thing. Because he loves us. Those who've been called, who are loved in God the Father. Um, I was at um, the Keswick Convention uh, last week helping with uh, some of the the teens stuff and we had a question box and one of the questions that um, one of the teenagers put in was, why does God love us so much? That's a great question, isn't it? Why does God love us? Well, it's not because of a lack in God, as if he needed us to to kind of fill some hole. Some human love can be like that, can't it? We call it love, but there's an element of selfishness to it. We, We want what others can give, and so we give to them. It's not because of a lack in God, and it's not because anything in us is worthwhile. Human love is often driven by something we find lovely in the other person. Perhaps a a manner, an attribute of their character, their sense of humour. And so we pursue them, we love them. And we easily assume that God's love works in exactly the same way, but scripture tells us God doesn't love us because he's been kind of looking afar, having a little little cheeky eye glance across the room. No, he loves us because he chooses to love us. And we don't have to look inwards to see that, but look outwards to the world he's made, the fact that he has created us and that he sent his son that we might know and enjoy that love. A love that chooses to love us is the most secure love we could ever hope for doesn't change according to season, takes us at our very best and also at our very worst. We are called and loved. He chooses us because he loves us. And it can be a bit tricky to get our heads around this, can't it? But let me just share a, um, a, a little quote from Charles Spurgeon, the uh, 19th century preacher. 
Um, he said this, which I just find um, really helpful. I think it's going to come up on the screen. Um, I believe the doctrine of election, that's the idea that God calls people to himself. I believe it because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born, or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Called and loved, actions of a gracious God. But not only called, loved, kept, kept for Jesus Christ. Um, I love my parents. I think I've used this illustration before, so sorry if you've heard this, but, but when I was a wee lad, uh, I got lost in a museum in Paris. Um, my sister was little, in a pram still, and uh, the kind of accessibility wasn't great, so they had to leave me somewhere um, looking at a painting or something whilst they, they sort of went round the kind of the sort of staircase that, that was pram, pram kind of accessible. And you know, getting lost was partly my fault. I should have stayed put where I was told. Um, but they needed to go and kind of get my sister up the stairs. And they just left me for a couple of minutes. But it felt like an eternity. And especially somewhere where, you know, you don't know the language. It all feels a bit strange. Um, I was a bit of a vulnerable little boy anyway. Um, so I started blubbering. And once they didn't appear, um, a museum staff took pity on me and kind of took me along to the, the welcome desk at reception. And I don't know what mum and dad thought. They got there, where is our son? <laughs> well, the tannoy rings out. Mr. and Mrs. Evans, would you please come and collect your son from reception? God is not like my parents. They lost me for just a few minutes. But for all who are in Christ, we are kept for Jesus. God won't lose us for a single second. We are being kept for him on that final day. Spiritually protected. Called, loved, and kept. Do you see how secure our salvation is? It is all of grace, isn't it? You don't start the Christian life by doing anything because you are called by God. You continue it by God's grace. You are loved and that love is a love that will not let you go. We are kept for Jesus. And being kept is a theme we get all the way through Jude. Maybe you heard it in verse 24. It's a verse we say at the end of every prayer meeting. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present us before his glorious presence. Sometimes um, I'll ask Sophie to drop me a message if she's arrived somewhere um, safely, especially if it's a bit of a drive. Um, it'd be a bit odd for me to do that when it's just sort of to Sainsbury's, but, um, you know, a long, dark, wet drive, sort of it's reassuring, isn't it? I'm sure some of us maybe do, do the same. Jude isn't just reassuring them of their security to be nice, though. He's going to unveil a danger in their midst and a fight on their hands. So before they think about any of that, they need to know that their salvation is secure. And before we get onto those points, perhaps if that is the only thing that you take from this morning, maybe that is something that you need to be reminded of. 
I pray that all, those, all you remember is those three words, that you are called, loved, and kept. Then that will be a precious thing to go into this week knowing, won't it? Well, our salvation is secure. But secondly, our foundation is threatened. Jude now introduces us to some new arrivals at church with a new message. Um, have a look at verse 4. Certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So we've got some new arrivals. Came in the same door. They look um, pretty similar to everyone else. They secretly slipped in among you, unnoticed. And that's what's dangerous about them. They seem unthreatening. They're just sat next to us, filling up these empty chairs. But however normal they might appear, Jude insists, verse 4, they are ungodly people. Why? Well, it's not so much the things they're saying, but it is how they are living. This is where the new arrivals show that they've actually got a new message. Verse 4 tells us, they pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. And that word particularly, when we if you look that word up being used in the New Testament, particularly is talking about sexual immorality in, in different guises. They pervert the grace of our God. In our first point, we've just seen the Christian message is all about the grace of God, isn't it? God treating rebels and sinners not as we deserve, but calling us to life in himself, loving us with an everlasting love, and keeping us for the return of Jesus. When we think about God's grace, it isn't merely that we are freely forgiven, but it is the cost of that forgiveness in the work of Christ on the cross. Grace is beautiful. God's grace is precious beyond words. But these new arrivals have a new message which denies the grace of God. How does it do that? Well, not by denying the word itself, but, did you see, perverting it, or kind of reinterpreting it, twisting it, saying that grace means we're free to live how we like, turning it into a license for immorality. Um, I meant to bring my driving license up. I actually left my wallet at home, but I could show you my driving license. Just imagine it. It's got a picture of me, about 10 years old. Um, I'm not 10 years old. The picture's 10 years old. Um, it, it means I'm allowed to drive, and so it's sort of quite good to sort of carry it around. What do they say grace is? Well, grace is another kind of license. Maybe you'd kind of put it in your wallet, carry it around. It's got an immorality license. That's what grace is. If I've got this, then I can live with Jesus as my saviour, but I can ignore him as my Lord. Grace is an immorality license. That is what they are saying. Now, I wonder how that works its way out. Maybe at church on a Sunday, we probably hear them saying things which sound correct. We're under grace, not law. Following Jesus is about grace, not rules. Freedom, not Worrying whether you're good enough. And in a sense, 
All of those things are true, aren't they? That is how we come to know the Lord Jesus. But what is that newfound freedom for? Well, I wonder if, as the church carried on, in the week they started to find out what this newfound freedom was for. Um, Perhaps on your drive home, you see one of these new people stumbling outside the local pub, throwing up. Maybe you see another uh, in a restaurant being intimate with a woman who isn't his wife. Maybe another you're friends with on Facebook or Instagram, and you see them putting up all sorts of dirt from the office on social media for anyone to see, making stuff public that should be private. Also, they can get some likes and popularity. This freedom is for serving themselves, their own desires, not for serving the Lord Jesus. And you see them on Sunday again, or maybe it's a few Sundays because maybe they haven't come, you know, grace, don't need to, why do I need to come to church at all? And you think about mentioning it next time you see them. And you sort of, you say something. Surprisingly, they're not bothered. Why? Well, look, Grace, I've got an immorality license. I can do whatever I like. And that is the key. Who is the master in this gospel? It's not Jesus, is it? It's us. This is a threat to the foundation of the gospel itself, isn't it? Because those two phrases at the end of verse 4, they fit together. If you pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality, then you deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. They want Jesus as saviour, but hate him as Lord. But you can't have half of Jesus like that. That's not who he is. He is a whole Christ. He is always Lord and saviour. And do you see what's going on under the bonnet here? When we reject him as Lord, we reject him as saviour as well. Jesus then becomes basically a means to an end. He's not someone to rejoice in. Think about it. His agonizing death, his costly obedience, they become little more than a means so that I can indulge whatever desire I fancy and face none of the consequences. Jesus becomes little more than a a fire insurance policy. We sign it and then it gathers dusts until when I want to use it. But if that's what we think grace is, it's not worth the paper it's written on, is it? If that's what we think grace is, then our foundation is under threat. Because that version of grace means the best thing about Jesus is that he saves me from hell. And that there's nothing about him worth knowing, nothing about him worth following. That doesn't sound a particularly glowing biography of the eternal son who is the radiance of the father's glory, does it? Jesus as saviour, but not Lord, turns him into a means to an end. But the best thing about Jesus is Jesus himself. And every blessing that is found in him. 
You can't separate the gift from the giver. The good and fruitful ways that he leads us in are linked to the salvation that he brings. He isn't a means to an end. He is the end. Verse 1, we are kept for Jesus. Anything else is perverted grace. Listen to Titus 2 verse 11, to true grace. It's going to come up on the screen. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. True grace brings salvation and transformation through communion with Jesus who gave himself for us and who we belong to. True grace brings freedom not to serve ourselves, but freedom from serving ourselves to follow the Lord Jesus, and to enjoy the goodness of being under his rule. But here's the thing. In a culture like ours, you do you, find your true self. Living with Jesus as Lord doesn't instinctively sound as very good news, does it? Surrendering our life to somebody else. But surrender can lead to two things, can't it? In, in war, surrender might lead to captivity and torture and all sorts of horrors. But it could also lead to freedom, depending on the person we surrender to. Have a listen to Jesus' words. This is the one that we surrender our lives to. Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus gives us rest. He takes our burdens. He gives us salvation. But he also gives us a yoke we can bear, not leaving us to flounder under self-rule, but we surrender to him and find true freedom. If we hear of grace being turned into a license for immorality, then that is a threat to our very foundation. And we will hear messages like this, won't we? Um, some from Christian teachers. We might hear that it's fine to redefine marriage according, not according to Jesus' definition of one man and one woman for life. Or we might hear that any sexual activity outside of that context of marriage, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, that's not a sin. Or that we can do what we like with our bodies to the extent even of taking the life of the unborn or the infirm. We will hear these voices, even in the church, which deny the lordship of Jesus. They are a threat to our foundation. They are a threat to the grace of God. 
But it's very easy to look out, isn't it? Because we hear it in our own hearts too. Parents will be tempted to be harsh with their children, unlike Jesus has told us to be. Husbands will be tempted to be overbearing or absent and not loving of their wives. Wives may be tempted to belittle and not respect their husbands. Workers will be tempted to be lazy or not submit to bosses. We'll be tempted, all of us, to go to places in our minds and hearts and screens in the privacy of our home. Whatever that sin might be that plays you day by day, we've all been in that moment where we hear a little voice saying, don't worry, Jesus has paid for the privilege. It's so tempting to think of grace as an immorality license, isn't it? It wasn't just a threat then, it is a threat now. But please hear me say, Jude is not saying there is no room for failure. Remember, our salvation is secure. We are called, we are loved, we are kept for the Lord Jesus. Christ has done all the work for us and he is in us now as we seek to put sin to death. But he is saying there should be no room for presumption upon the grace of God, no cheap grace. It cost Jesus his life. And so we should give him ours. So a threatened foundation. What are we to do? Not my problem. Well, Jude is writing because he wants them to know security and salvation doesn't lead to slacking. Confidence in grace doesn't mean complacency. No, when we know our salvation is secure but we see the foundation of grace being threatened, our contending is called for. That's our third point. Our contending is called for. Verse three, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. What do we do? Jude says we are to contend it's a kind of word from the sports arena. It's where that we get the word agonize from. It's not a, a gentle jog or a kind of working away from couch to 5K, although I find that pretty grueling. This is a sweaty marathon. It's that moment where you see someone leaving everything out on the pitch. They are to contend. And what for? Well, the faith. We've been entrusted with the most precious thing in the universe. And so we must ensure we defend it and the honour of Jesus while it is in our care. Have you ever been asked to look after anything before? Maybe when people go away on holiday, um, I think I've done hamsters, cats, dogs, children, houses. Um, I'll be honest, I was much less bothered about stick insects getting out than when a dog ran away. Um, the more precious a thing is, the more care we take of it. And so... It's good for us to ask, how precious is the gospel to us? How precious is it that we are called, loved, and kept? I guess part of our prayer must be that the gospel of grace and any threat to it would be seen as so serious because grace is so precious that we are ready to jump in the ring, to give it our all. Contend for the faith, but, but who is to contend? Well, it's not just Jude, but the church, those who are called, loved, and kept. Verse 3 says, the faith was once for all entrusted to God's 
holy people. That's all of us. Contending isn't just for the apostles, not the pastors or the theologians, but for every Christian. What it looks like will vary from person to person. Not everyone is going to be called to kind of fight for the truths of the gospel, fight for the Christian view of dignity of life or sexuality. Not everyone's going to do that from a kind of platform, but some will. But we all have a part to play. We're going to think about that more in the coming weeks. It might be being more informed, praying, or supporting people in the front line. But we all contend in one way or another. We're all called to be ready to live and speak for Jesus when it might count. In the office, on the way home from the playground, in the classroom. Maybe one of the biggest ways we contend is by trying to be a healthy church. The church displays the grace of God to everybody watching. Maybe we contend for the grace of God that way, gathering week by week, seeking to follow Christ. But just as we close, how do you feel about that call to contend? Some of us, I imagine, totally see why we need to do this. But we might feel a bit reluctant because we think, well, what, is, what, what are these other people going to think of me when I stand up and say, actually, I disagree with that? We might know that they don't agree with our faith and we might be quite fearful to contend. Well, if that's you, can I encourage you and speak to myself? Let Jude's reminder that our salvation is secure sink in. Let the fact that God is keeping you safe for heaven, that you are kept for Jesus, work away at that fear. But others of us are passionate about contending. In fact, like we've already got the gloves on, we are spoiling to jump into the ring. Maybe we haven't even understood some of the issues that are facing us today. Uh, Maybe we enjoy the fight a little bit more than we should. If that's you, remember that Jude has a pastor's heart that's you just flick on to verse 22 and 23 he says be merciful to those who doubt snatch others from the fire and save them to others show mercy mixed with fear Jude is longing always to win the person over the fight he is strong but he is compassionate well in the next couple of weeks we'll see Jude speaking to to both those camps, wherever we might fall. But ultimately, who is the great contender? Well, it is Jesus himself. He alone, for us and in us, will help us to be both strong and kind, fearless and compassionate. So our salvation is secure, our foundation is threatened, and our contending is called for. So let's pray, shall we, that over the next couple of weeks, the Lord will help us to grow in that. I'll take a moment before I pray. Heavenly Father, we 
thank you and praise you that your gospel is all of grace. It begins with you. We are sustained by you. It ends by your goodness, called, loved, and kept. We thank you that our salvation is so secure. Father, we pray that your grace would be so precious to us that when we see it threatened, when we see it perverted, in our hearts, elsewhere, that we would long to see that wrong being made right. Well, please grant a courage within us, we pray, that we might be willing to contend for the faith in the moments where it is right to do so. But Father, we know we need help to do that in ways that are true and faithful, but also ways that are compassionate and kind. We thank you that the Lordship of Jesus is good news for us because he is a good shepherd who leads us in paths that bring life and flourishing and righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.